The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you here tonight. So I'll be finishing up a series of talks on effort in the context of our daily life and also in, in the context of our meditation practice. What does right effort look like? In a way, this is the whole practice or the whole path. I think it's fair to say that I mean, there are different ways to reflect on what we mean by a spiritual path. But one, I think, really useful way is just to see how our understanding of effort evolves over time. What does wise effort look like in our lives? How did it look 10 years ago? What does wise effort look now? And it relates to uh, an understanding of what balance is. Um, I'm sure this is true for many of you too, but even today, I'll notice how I'll resort to kind of getting myself, allowing myself to get charged up about something. For example, using fear to charge myself up, like people do this by procrastinating, and then whatever it is that they've got to get done, they have very little time to do it, and that rouses fear, and then the fear allows for some kind of effort, and sometimes you get it done and sometimes you don't. Or we can, you know, uh, play with the mind, rouse a lot of desire for something, and that might get us to make some effort. But uh, there's always like, a, it seems like an equal and opposite reaction when we play in this way, when we work with effort in this way, sort of rousing emotional energy, fear, desire, uh, anger, fear, desire, or something like that, one of those afflictive states, rousing that in order to motivate ourselves to do something. So in many ways, the Buddha talked about balance in terms of effort. Not too tight, not too loose. There's a famous discourse with uh, Sona, uh, a monk who uh, was practicing by himself in the forest at the time of the time of the Buddha, and uh, really working hard, doing his walking meditation practice, so much so that he wore off the skin on the bottoms of his feet, had huge blisters and sores. He sat down and he was sort of lamenting his lack of success in meditation, thinking of himself as a failure, imagining himself going back to his family, who were, evidently were very wealthy, and thinking, he was thinking, sitting there, thinking, you know, I could go back to the lay life, I'd be wealthy, I could give a lot of dana, a lot of generosity, support the monks and nuns, build places for them to practice, do good works, enjoy the sense world, you know, be married, have a happy family, eat when I want, eat as much as I want, all the things that are 
somewhat restricted in the monastic life. And as the story goes, at least, the Buddha, having psychic powers, picked up that Venerable Sona was having these thoughts and somehow was able to manifest himself there in front of Sona and uh, said to Sona, yeah, isn't it true that you were, uh, before you became a monk, you were a vena player, some kind of a stringed instrument? And uh, Venerable Sona said, yes. And the Buddha said, well, if, you're, if you really had the strings loose, would you be able to play well? And he said, no. And he said, well, if you had the strings really tight, would you be able to play well? And he said, no, less so in practice. You know, if, if we're too tight, the practice doesn't work. If we're too loose, the practice doesn't work. So often, it's interesting, often it seems when you read the discourses of the Buddha, there's a real emphasis on, in this vigorous kind of effort. But part of it is, I think, just what do we need to hear? Like we may be a kind of person that's already pushing too hard, striving too hard, and we might need the instruction to loosen the strings a little bit. The strings are too tight, they're ready to snap. Or we may be somebody who's always holding back a little bit. You know, isn't it, isn't it easy for us to have this thought, you know, I'm, I'm saving myself. I used to be a long distance runner and uh, you know, often I, I notice in my mind, oh, I better, I better just hold back, you know, because I may not be able to finish this race. And I can always pick it up later. I can always pick up the pace later. So we just have to have a sense of our relationship to showing up, to being mindful, to seeing things clearly, to manifesting the wholesome qualities, and to preventing and abandoning the unwholesome qualities that we see floating around in the mind. Are we content to let the mind dwell in aversion, dwell in fear, dwell in greed, you know, in various unwholesome states? Or are we actively looking and saying, oh, this isn't wholesome. Somebody should do something about this. <laughs> Maybe that somebody is me, you know, it's my mind. Maybe I should do something about these unwholesome states instead of just allowing the mind to dwell there. This is from um, this great Thai monk and scholar, Buddhist scholar, Ajahn Piradasi, in his book, The Buddha's Ancient Path. One need not struggle with unwholesome thoughts when doing mental exercises. Here he means spiritual practices. It should all be natural. If we try to fight our evil thoughts, we shall not succeed. Instead, we should note and watch our thoughts as they rise, analyze them, and try to ease the tension. The technique is like that of swimming. If you do not move your limbs, you will sink. If you whirl about, you will not swim. Or like a sleeper, if you struggle with the thought of sleep, you will never fall off. It will only be a mental torment to you. You must not make any effort to sleep. It must come naturally. And you should only relax any tense muscles. <coughs> Again, self-torment is one of the two extremes that the Buddha 
wants the meditator to avoid as profitless. It is useless to torture the body in order to stop the rise of unwholesome thoughts. For such torment often ends in aversion and frustration. When the mind is frustrated, callous indifference to meditation follows. All our mental exercises should be natural and performed with awareness. Zeal without prudence is like running in the night. As the Buddha points out, extremes should be avoided everywhere by those who wish to gain deliverance through enlightenment. They should keep to the middle path in the practice of right effort. In the practice of right effort, too, one has to follow the median way. And in a way, you know, opposite of right effort, we could describe the entire life, the entire path of missing the point in life, of sort of living as a deluded being, which is what we do, all of us, I think, most of the time. We're living as a deluded being. We could characterize that as a life of swinging from one extreme to the other, from hope to despair. Right? Does that sound familiar, where we feel hopeful, and then we crash, and then we feel despairing? I heard uh, Cornell West today on uh, Democracy Now! It's a radio program on some stations, KFAI. And uh, Amy Goodwin uh, was, Goodman was uh, interviewing Cornell West, a professor at Princeton, and a well-known uh, African-American um, scholar and critic of a lot of um, a lot of what he sees, and he was talking about Barack Obama and some of his appointees, uh, some of the people he's considering or has appointed to his administration, and and uh, he talked about how uh, how at the time of the election on Tuesday night he had tears in his eyes, but he didn't stop being a critic, <laughs> and and is comfortable being very inspired by the fact that an African-American has been elected and at the same time really wanting to do his job as uh, a spokesperson for progressive causes and wanting to hold Barack Obama to the fire in that way. And this is the, this is the same, I think, that in some way in our own practice where we will be touched by things, we will be inspired, we will have hope. But even in those moments of hope, we're understanding, we're not forgetting the, the sort of uh, long path that we're on. Because otherwise, if we get hopeful, we kind of let down our, our inner guard. We stop practicing, basically. And in the same way, if we get despairing or if we feel helpless, we also stop practicing. This is why the, a life of extremes doesn't work, because at both ends of the spectrum, we stop practicing. When we have a lot of hope, a lot of, you know, exuberance, we feel, I'm already here, you know? I already have what I want. I'm happy. I've got, a, I've got organic ice cream in the fridge downstairs. <laughs> I've got high-speed internet access, at, you know? And so it's like... What else does a person need <laughs> to be entertained in this world? Or we could think just the opposite. You know, I've got, I've got a to-do list that 
has no end. And, you know, I have, you know, we can go on and on like that. And it would be like, well, all we want to do is bury our head in the sand and not, not do what comes next, not do the next thing. So part of right effort, probably one of the most important parts of right effort is this balance. And one of the ways to keep this balance and to avoid going into one of the two extremes where we flail about or where we give up is to remember the present moment. Because in a tuning, tuning into the present moment, in a way, we're forced to abandon the two extremes. We can't be totally caught up in hope and be in the present moment. We can't, because hope is a concept. We have to be lost in concepts to be caught in hope. Same with despair and helplessness. If we just turn to the present moment feeling of hope or the feeling of despair, then we're back in the practice mode. And there's this wonderful and well-known discourse the Buddha gave, sometimes translated as one fortunate attachment, which is a bit of a joke. And evidently the Buddha liked puns and play on words and jokes and I don't know about sarcasm, but even even a kind of sort of, I don't know what the, it's a different word than sarcasm, but I, it's escaping me right now. Satire, maybe. But anyway, one fortunate attachment, it's not that the Buddha really wants us to be attached, but he's saying there there is room for a dedication, and, th- and this is what he says, it, what our de- where we should be dedicated. He says, let not a person revive the past, or on the future build her hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let her see each presently arising state. Let her know that, and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentless, by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage, has said, who has one fortunate attachment. So in this way, right effort, uh, you know, and this is something we hear a lot in the Buddhist tradition, Right effort is much more about what we let go of than what we try to get. So with right effort, we're not trying to get something or become something. We're really committing, really dedicating to this one thing, which is letting go of the past, letting go of the future. And then naturally, we're left with the here and now. And if we keep letting go of the past and the future, we learn to abide in the here and now. We learn to have some continuity in the here and now. And then quite naturally, being present in the here and now, if an unwholesome state were to arise in our minds, we'd notice it because we're right here in the here and now. And that's where that unwholesome state is arising in the here and now. So we, there would be a knowing of it. When we know something unwholesome is arising, the abandoning, the letting go happens. We don't need to do something. There doesn't need to be a mark who abandons fear when it arises. If I, if there's a sense of knowing in that moment, fear is just let go of. 
If there's a wholesome state arising like gratitude or forgiveness or patience or clarity or kindness and we're present, we see that wholesome state arising, then it's allowed to bloom freely as it is. So to review the, the formula for right effort again, the Buddha talks about preventing unwholesome states from arising. If they have arisen, how to abandon them. And in terms of wholesome states, he talks about developing wholesome states that aren't in the mind, wholesome qualities that aren't in the mind, and maintaining the wholesome qualities that are in the mind. So I had earlier talked a lot about abandoning and preventing. I want to talk a little bit more about developing and maintaining, especially maintaining. But first let me just review how do we develop wholesome states. And it's part of this basic principle that wholesome states, by definition really, are quali um, represent inherent qualities in the mind. So something, you know, we could easily gener generate a list of 50 wholesome qualities. But they'd all, ba they'd all boil down to what the Buddha calls the three wholesome roots. Non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion, right? So any wholesome mindset you can imagine, you could probably fit into one of these categories. So non-greed would things be things like, you know, contentment and generosity, and uh, non-aversion would be things like kindness and forgiveness and patience, love, and non-delusion would be things like non-denial or uh, a kind of a courageousness to see how it is, wanting to see the truth of things, clarity non-distractedness. So we have these three wholesome states. One particular list that's good to remember, as I brought up last week, is the seven factors of awakening. And I mentioned them brief briefly in the sit tonight. So we have three energizing and three tranquilizing factors. And then there's mindfulness as a seventh. Mindfulness is the quality of the mind that recognizes how it is. It's like remembers to recognize how it is in the present moment. That's what mindfulness does. It's a remembering that there is this present moment to recognize. And with mindfulness, we can develop any of these six other qualities by simply recognizing them in a seed form. So right now, you might not be that interested but to whatever degree there is some interest in your mind that you haven't totally checked out, if you look at the interest that there is in the mind with mindful attention, if you just notice this inherent potential in your mind to be interested, if you just notice that, noticing of it will cause it to develop and be maintained. If it's really a wholesome state, seeing it, because the wholesome state is just a manifestation of the background, the, the sort of inherent quality of the mind, if you see it, 
it sort of reveals this whole background, which is characterized by interest, that sort of alive part of the mind that naturally is interested in seeing clearly. That's, the mind does that. We don't actually, the only thing we can do is obscure that potentiality of interest or investigation. We can deaden it, you know, various ways. We can distract ourselves from it, but we can't get rid of it. So if we notice it, it blooms. Same with joy. You know, if we just notice a little joy, you know, like you might be seeing some of your relatives next week on Thanksgiving, and for you, let's assume it's a pleasant experience. <laughs> Maybe there's one person that you're really looking forward to seeing, and you just... You know, you just bring that person to mind. Then maybe this this wholesome feeling of joy, just the joy of being connected with other human beings, the joy of belonging, arises. And now without using, not even needing the story of, oh, I'm going to see my cousin Sally or something like that, without even the story, just tuning into that joy, it, it begins, we begin to feel that joy, that quality of uh, energy moving in a pleasant way throughout the body and mind. This is how we grow and maintain wholesome states. We, we practice being mindful of them. Same with tranquility. If we're feeling kind of a, a nice relaxation in the heart, a kind of contentment and ease in the heart, and we just pay attention. We don't think about why I'm content or why I'm happy. We just pay attention to the feeling of happiness and contentment, you'll see that it grows, it develops. Now, of course, it doesn't mean we won't get distracted, and when we're distracted, that state might then fall away, meaning we're, not a, we're no longer aware of it, it's no longer there to be seen. But as long as we are not distracted, as long as we maintain that simple, clear attention, wholesome states tend to grow and be maintained. So one of the instructions I gave last week in terms of developing wholesome states, whether you use just the three, you know, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or put it in the positives, you know, or have a list of 20 or a list of 50 wholesome qualities, or use the Buddha's seven factors of awakening, Ener uh, investigation, energy, rapture, or joyful interest, and then three, tranquilizing, um, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, and then mindfulness is the seventh. So you could use whatever list, but it's really useful to uh, look for wholesome states. We tend to miss this part of practice. We think, oh, I'm only looking for dukkha. You know, I'm looking for suffering, for tension, for those evil tendencies of the mind, so I can take out my sword of mindfulness and slash them, <laughs> cut them to bits. But it's just as important, and actually it's harder, it's a more challenging practice both to recognize the wholesome states, but even more than recognizing them, to have this calm, clear presence with them. We want to see the wholesome states without getting caught in thought. Remember, there's, the, uh, there's two extremes. There's despair, but there's also you know, hope. And when we see wholesome states, the 
the shadow of wholesome states is to get caught in hope, which is what happens then is we're thinking about the wholesome state. We're not experiencing it. We're thinking about how wonderful our life is. We're not feeling how wonderful our life is. We're not connected to joy. We're thinking about being happy. And when we think about happy, that's a stressful state. And then we get this, I'm sure you've had this experience where you're kind of in this realm that you've created, thinking about your happiness. And then all of a sudden you realize you're not happy. And then there's this very weird and uh, disturbing experience where we thought we were happy, and then we check and we're not happy because we've created so much stress thinking about being happy that we begin to mistrust our mind. It's like then doubt can come in. What, am I crazy? You know, it's like I was so happy, thinking I was so happy. And then I look, and there's all this sort of bound up energy of kind of stirring up uh, that froth. And uh, it, it makes us mistrust the mind mistrust we know what we're doing and uh, unfortunately all we have is the mind so this is it's like we can't escape this is this is our path is the mind developing itself the mind clarifying itself so we don't want to doubt the mind we want to purify the mind we want to sort of develop its inherent strengths and not be confused by its conditioned sort of weaknesses, it's habitual weaknesses. And this way is the middle way, you know, not falling, not allowing the mind to fall into the two extremes of hope and fear, hope and despair. And the last of the effort will be familiar, maintaining wholesome states will be familiar because it sounds a lot like some of the instructions we get in meditation practice. Keeping firmly in mind a favorable object of meditation that has arisen. Now, favorable object of meditation could be a wholesome mind state like loving kindness, but it also can be a neutral mind state or a neutral object like, excuse me, the sensations of the breath in the body. So, keeping firmly in mind a favorable, favorable object like the sensations of the in breath and the sensations of an out breath. Because when we do that, we're maintaining a wholesome state of mind, which is mindfulness of the breathing process. And, you know, when we're mindful, mindfulness brings all its friends along. Because when we're mindful, that means there's some authentic interest, and there's energy, and there's the joy of not being distracted, the joy of not the mind not being scattered, not worrying, when we're wholehearted, when we're with the breath and some, with some kind of continuity, we've abandoned a lot. And there's joy because of all the afflictive mind states we've abandoned. And we start to rest in the simplicity of the mind knowing the breath. That's the tranquility. And as we rest more, the mind gets more one-pointed. That's the concentration. And with the deepening of concentration, there's this insight, this wisdom that comes in. Wisdom is impersonal. It arises when the conditions are there for it to arise. And what is the condition for wisdom to arise? That clear, one-pointed attention. Because when we see things clearly, without distraction, we see the natural, 
personal, conditional unfolding of everything. And so we just trust it. That's what equanimity is. We're trusting that things are unfolding lawfully. So what arises is the wisdom to just let things unfold naturally, including allowing the personality to unfold naturally. So it's not like we check out of the system. Part of what we're allowing to unfold naturally is our own life, our own body and mind. So it's not that equanimity means we let everybody else unfold naturally, conditionally, and we somehow are set apart, you know, watching it all, like God looking down on all the sort of conditioned folks unfolding naturally and conditionally. But we recognize that we're, we, meaning the body and mind, it's also part of that lawful, conditional, effortless, natural unfolding of all things. That's where equanimity comes. It's the natural arising. That kind of wisdom naturally arises when these seven factors are in balance. So in terms of maintaining wholesome states, it's really about developing the skill in non-distraction. It's like we find something wholesome or neutral to pay attention to, and then we practice not being distracted. This is how this is how we develop all of the wholesome states, develop and maintain all the wholesome states. One of the things that really uh, stands out, especially when you go on some retreats or do some um, real regular daily sitting, like you're sitting every day for an hour or 45 minutes, and, and some, some days on the week, maybe a little longer even, or maybe two sits a day, some days of the week. So you're having some real continuity in your practice. And um, one of the things you see in practice is when you get some moments of continuity, the experience radically shifts. So we may think our mindfulness is continuous, but probably for most of us, most of the time, there isn't a lot of continuity. We have a moment of mindfulness, and then mostly moments of distraction with a little mindfulness, and then maybe another moment of more pure mindfulness where the mind is really fully here now. Meaning mindfulness, a moment of pure mindfulness in this sense, implies that the mind isn't under the influence of concepts. So it's not what we're seeing, what the mind is knowing in that moment, isn't being distorted by our view. Whatever view there is in the mind isn't distorting the perception of what's being known. And when we can start stringing a few of these moments together, and I mean just, you know, 5, 10, 15 seconds of real mindfulness, we start having experiences that stand out as being unique from how we normally understand and experience our lives. And what happens is all the wholesome qualities get activated when there's continuity because there's nothing obscuring them. Remember what I said earlier tonight, wholesome qualities of mind that we talk about are just the inherent qualities. Like they're always there in the background, but they're obscured by our, our thinking, our self-centered dramas. So they're still there, but they're, they're in a sense suppressed because the mind the part of the mind that pays attention is paying attention to our thoughts, our fixations, our dramas. And so we're obscured from seeing, knowing, 
the nature of the mind, let's call it. So when we have some continuity of mindfulness, the nature of the mind becomes what's apparent because there's nothing obscuring it. All we have is this mindfulness, this intention to see things clearly, this non-distraction, and the developing balance. And so what naturally, unavoidably arises is the mind seeing Dhamma the way it is, the truth of things, seeing the mind itself, the nature of the mind itself. And um, this is a, a, these moments are transforming because uh, it's like the Buddha just talks about how the seven factors come alive. But you could just think about it like the wholesome qualities come alive, and they come alive in a balanced way. And as the, it's sort of like uh, the mind gets really powerful, we start seeing things, and what we see challenges or uproots what we thought. It challenges and uproots our concepts or our views of things, of who we are, what we are, what's going on here, what's important, what's not important. And this is how the spiritual life becomes transforming, because how we see things is transformed when we see things without distortion, the distortions of our previous views, our previous concepts. So the whole purpose of effort is to know how to abandon what's obscuring wise attention and to know how to develop and maintain. And the essence of developing and maintaining is learning to recognize what's currently wholesome in the mind or even a seed of what's wholesome in the mind and then watering it with mindfulness, developing this art, this real skill of non-distraction so that, you know, it, this is not the point to say, oh, just let anything happen, you know, whatever happens is okay. There are points in practice where we really want a little fire, a little wholeheartedness like we're on that wild bronco, but we're not going to fall off. We really want to we really wanna stick with something. So like when we're at the breath, it's sometimes very useful, essential even, to practice not losing the awareness of the breath or to be really interested in what is cutting off the attention to the breath. How is it that I'm paying attention to the breath and then in the next moment I'm thinking about my next meal? Like, how does that happen? Where does that, how does that break happen? So we want to uh, get interested in continuity. Like, how can we maintain continuity? When we feel some contentment, like really looking at the contentment, and what happens to it? What happens to the attention to the contentment? How can we maintain a continuity of attention? Because this is what allows everything to open up. This is what allows insight to happen, is through the development of samadhi, this unification of mind, then samadhi unavoidably has insight. As an ego being, no matter how much you want insight, it won't happen. If you really want insight, if you want your life to be transformed, you have to play with the causes and conditions that make it happen. 
because insight is a natural arising. It's a lawful arising. It happens when the supporting causes are there, and it won't happen if they're not there. And the supporting causes, again, it is this beautiful balance in the mind where there's the energizing factors and the calming factors, and the mind is free of distortion, meaning we're not caught by our thoughts. It doesn't mean there aren't thoughts floating around, but the mind isn't orienting. The mind isn't under the gravitational pull of the thoughts. It's not fixated on the thoughts. It's not taking the thoughts seriously or personally. They're just thoughts. And the mind is orienting toward Dhamma, or the way things are, the way it is, wanting to see things in this sort of more pure, direct way. So I'll leave it here so we have some time to check in with one another tonight. Um, this would be the last night we talk about right effort. Uh, next Wednesday I'll talk about uh, the last two parts of samadhi, which we've been covering anyway through talking about right effort, which is mindfulness and concentration. So I'll spend some time on that. So in your own practice of daily life practice and sitting practice of right effort, what have you learned? Maybe times when you were like Sona and you wore the soles of your feet off, or times when you avoided wholeheartedness, or any questions you have about the talk tonight? Anything come to mind? Yes, Jeff. Um, I guess I, I feel this tension in some of these teachings where, on the one hand, you want to open up. And so, um, you know, if you're bored, you just open up to that. But on the other hand, you know, developing wholesome states. So I, I feel a tension between opening to what's there and, and trying to. Uh, move beyond it. So how do we um, abandon states without, you know, pushing them away and averting them, and how do we develop others without developing this tension where, you know, we yeah. want to move on to this better thing? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because I meant to bring that up tonight. <laughs> and it, one of the, uh, it's just a, it's like so many things, you know, we create this list, but this list doesn't really represent how it happens. It's much more organic. Because as soon as you open, let's say you have a lot of doubt, you notice you have a lot of doubt, so this intention arises in mind, open to the doubt, let it in. Oh, doubt's like this. Well, right now, doubt's not predominant. What's predominant is mindfulness of doubt. And even though the mindfulness is knowing doubt, really the mind is characterized by the mindfulness more than the doubt. Because the mind isn't fixating on the doubt, it's aware of the doubt. It's mindful, mindfully knowing the doubt. So already you've done that transfer. You've, you've cultivated a wholesome state. And if you maintain the mindfulness of doubt, you're maintaining the wholesome state. So they really they work together. If you have a lot of pain and you're mindful of the pain, you're cultivating wholesome states. You're developing and maintaining wholesome states. And remember, the continuity doesn't mean the continuity on one thing. You could be mindful of the pain or mindful of the doubt, and then, and then out of that comes a feeling of confidence in the practice or gratitude in the practice. You could be mindful of gratitude. Gratitude's like this. Then you could be hopeful. My God, someday I'm going to be enlightened. And then you could be mindful of hope. Oh, hope's like this. But being mindful of hope isn't being in the extreme because we understand 
there's a knowing. That's really what's happening. A clear, calm, precise knowing that hope is like this. That as soon as we the mindfulness wavers, then we will be in hope, you know. And then there will be something to abandon. But as soon as we start to see, oh, there's dukkha. Ah, I'm attached to hope, attached to being the enlightened guy. Then already we're, we're doing that transformation from being under the gravitational pull of unwholesome states to under the gravitational pull of wholesome states. Thanks for the good question. Yes, Rebecca. and part of it at least and it may come down to the short term long term and part of uh, being on a spiritual path is a real change of orientation to short term to long term and if we're only interested in a kind of happiness or ease short term then we turn, tend to do short term things like staying in bed or whatever that might be but it's like staying in bed doesn't really take care of the long-term predicament of being a human being with confusion and suffering. So that's why we take a long-term view of things. Like getting up out of bed, even though it's unpleasant, may lead to sort of a transformation that ultimately is more pleasant than having stayed in bed. And even, not even in sort of in a vast way, but even like right now, like even though it was really hard for you, maybe, or a lot of us, to get our coats on and to get ourselves here, having been here right now, you know, have, knowing that it will end soon, was this the right, <laughs> was this the right thing to do? And so, th and when we're in that position, we want to, you know, it's like we use our imagination all the time to sort of mess up our life, but we can use our imagination to really support us. Like, we can imagine like if I always choose to stay in bed, if I always choose not to put my coat on, is that the life that I want to live? Or when I'm about to die, will I look back on this life and feel, yeah, it was a good life. I did the best I could. So uh, we want to take a vast view, like what's really going to take care of me forever? You know, and not just me, what is going to help all beings? forever, what's really going to set good things in motion in this world, in my heart. And then that, that, that helps us see, us see the choice in different ways, you know, kind of uh, gives it some dimension to the choices that we have to make in life. 
Thanks for back time. Yeah, Mary. Yeah, I think basically yes, but um, it's a tricky question. The one thing the Buddha did say that sort of similar to what you said, he said the mind is naturally radiant and pure, but it's only obscured by visiting defilements. So I think it's the same idea. Uh-huh. Yeah, Maria, and then is it Shelley? Yeah. Sherry. Oh, Sherry. Yeah. Thank you, Sherry. And I think one of the important things I heard you say is that it's about self-reliance. Like, we can't, we're not responsible, and we can't be responsible for fixing other people or even deciding if they need to be fixed. But what we can take responsibility for is our own pain. And as long as our heart is hurting, there's something that we can do about it. And now, maybe someday, like you suggested, there will be some reconciliation or your guys will be able to talk about this. But regardless of whether that day ever comes, 
you can really work with the pain in your heart. And there's all kinds of strategies for either temporarily changing the attention somewhere else so we're not just stewing in that, those difficult feelings or really looking directly at the pain, going beyond the story right into the pain in the heart, being mindful of that and releasing sort of the second arrow that the Buddha talks about. The first arrow is that we've been hurt. The second arrow that we shoot into ourselves is that we think about being hurt. You know, we indulge or dwell on it and it's like shooting a second arrow. We can take that arrow out if we see how unnecessary, how unproductive it is. So there are many strategies, but I think the important thing I heard you saying is that we want to take responsibility, uh, not to believe that we have to, that in order for this pain to be dealt with skillfully, we have to get the other person involved. Now, sometimes it makes a lot of sense to get the other person involved, but we're not dependent on that other person being involved in order to relate skillfully to the pain that we feel. Yeah, Maria. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you something. If you could say a little something about what you mean by insight. Because the sense I get is that you don't mean like you will have an insight, like you will get a thing. Um, and that's kind of the way I'm used to having, oh, I noticed this thing, it's an intellectual kind of little moment of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sense is that that's not what you're talking about. That, uh, that it's some kind of condition that, you know, that, that comes and goes. And so I don't always know. Uh, I mean, I feel as if meditation has been very beneficial to me, but I don't know that it has led me to great insight about myself in the way that I conventionally think about that meaning. So could you say something? Yeah, it's a really good question because we throw that word around a lot. And there's two ways uh, generally that we can think about it. And the one way that I'll talk about first will kind of represents a model or a metaphor for the, the deeper kind of insight or spiritual insight. But let's just say, let's talk about psychological insight where, you know, we all have different personality or habit patterns. And uh, a lot of them we're totally blind to or somewhat blind to. <clears throat> but then, you know, in being around certain friends and maybe going to a good therapist or just, upon, uh, just some skillful reflection and careful paying attention of our own sort of habit energy, all of a sudden what was never seen clearly before is now clearly seen. We just kind of get, oh, I'm this kind of person. You know, it's like uh, when this happens, I do this, or I feel this, or when people uh, yawn when I'm talking, this shame comes up in me, you know, and it's, now that, that's been happening for 40 years or 50 years, but now all of a sudden we see it as a pattern, so that's an insight. <clears throat> Before we were just reacting to it, it was still alive in us, we kind of knew it was there, but we didn't really get that it's just this pattern in the mind. And that's like an insight where something wasn't being seen clearly, it's now being seen clearly. And in seeing it clearly, the seeing it clearly sort of gets integrated in our whole kind of system of seeing ourselves, understanding the world is slightly or drastically changed in that, with that insight. It's like, oh. And, um, 
like this happens a lot in relationships where you are caught in some rut in a relationship and then one day you wake up so to speak and you get it oh I'm just like in this rut and you've been in a rut for 20 years but you never really got it but now you get that I'm in this rut and that's like an insight it's like the mind wasn't seeing something and now it's seeing something now though these are what these are all good these kind of insights are all good they happen in spiritual practice mindfulness supports these kind of healing insights but they, that isn't the limit of insight there are deeper insights which you could call spiritual or universal insights where uh, through the same process of paying attention the, uh, <clears throat> what's always been true about the nature of the mind but that but what we are not clear about becomes clear to some degree there's a, a deepening of clarity so we see a, there's like a glimpse of seeing something about the heart or mind that we haven't seen before and that seeing about the nature of the heart or mind transforms who we are it immediately is integrated and in a sense we're slightly different or very different being because of that insight well you might not identify them and they, they can be gradual see that so don't for some people they're like you walk into a wall it's a big deal and the earth shakes and they know that their life has changed they know they're a changed human being whether it's a psychological or a spiritual insight but it's not always the case and there are a lot of people uh, that are clearly transformed individuals, both therapeutically and spiritually, but they can't point to insights. But that doesn't mean insights didn't happen. They just meant that they were slow and gradual enough that, uh, that they didn't stand out. But the process works. Insight is unavoidable. The more the mind is oriented towards seeing things clearly, the more we have these therapeutic, let's call them, and spiritual insights. Yeah, Dave. Um, just to kind of play off what's been said already, what she asked about the discipline and the question about the insight really got me thinking. I was listening to this speaker talk about the concept of spiritual awakening and in terms of uh, why people do things like fasting, not just from food, but, you know, taking certain things out of our life that we use maybe to comfort us or why people do things like go on retreats and things like that. And um, he was talking about uh, how when you take that thing away, whether it be the food, that if it's food, you'll think, oh, I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry. And that's all you'll be thinking about. But then, and then he said you might notice feelings starting to come up like anger or other things like anger that you're hungry. And then he said you'll think you're angry because you don't have the food but really you're just angry and that really hit me like how you know we can use these things that comfort us to kind of dull out what we're really feeling and like by tapping into what's really going on at least within myself I noticed that that's where I kind of gained my insight and then he quoted this rabbi who said spiritual awakening doesn't occur by engaging in the things that make us comfortable and that really stuck with me, like how it's by 
you know, place, sometimes placing myself in situations of adversity, you know, like how you used the example of like long distance running, you know, or whatever it be, going on a long retreat, that like, that's a great opportunity to, to really tap into that, that level. For me, that's kind of been my experience with it. Mm. Thanks, Dave. That was really good. And let's leave that, leave it here. Take a few moments and let go of the words. It's always nice to appreciate being here in community. And taking a few moments to reflect on our deepest aspiration for our lives. Practicing and living for the benefit of all beings. May this life, each of our lives, support happiness and peace in the world, well-being and ease for all beings. Thanks again for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.